just want to begin by saying my job as preacher, it's, I take it very serious. It's, it's a strange job because in some sense you don't know if you're doing justice to what you're called to do. But I do also know that people who have been called to preach the word are going to be judged more severely according to James chapter 3 verse 1 in the way that the word of God is presented. That it's not, I'm not giving you my message or my soapbox. I'm trying to present to you what God would have you hear. And some of you really need it today. I think we all do. So to do that, there's two approaches that are very important for a pastor. One is called exegeting the text. So I take the Bible and I spend a lot of the week to understand what is the intent of the author. There's a lot of different tools to help you understand this Bible. But the objective is make sure what I'm communicating is what the author wanted communicated. And then secondly, to make it applicable, to find principles and lessons for us to be different people. The second goal I have, which is actually much harder, is to exegete you guys, to exegete the congregation. As they come in, I'm always praying, saying, God, what do they need? I think when you come in to sit down and listen to a sermon, I think there's some things you want. There's some unspoken things you want. Some people just want to laugh. Can the preacher be funny today? I like when the preacher's funny. That's okay. That's all right. Some people want to feel something. Oh, I felt warm love today, which is what people want. Some people don't know what they want. They just come because they're supposed to come. That's church. I'm supposed to come. It's the right thing to do. But also you come for some needs. And what you do need is you need to know two things. And you need this almost every time you come to church. You need to know that there is a God who is right now sitting on the throne and he is in complete control of this whole world. In fact, if I could, if I could my words, I'd love to rip open this this roof, and then rip open the heavens and have you peer in to see that the Son of the living God is alive, sitting at the Father's right hand, and He sees everything you do. And He knows what's on your heart. He knows some of you are dying on the inside, and He knows it. He knows some of you think He's a complete man. And He wants to reach you. And he's real, like he's really real. I think that's a hard thing for us to, to conceive of because we're so quick. We come to church and we go home, we go to dinner, then we take a week, and then we're back to church again. It's like, oh, can we ever catch a break? The second thing you need to know, and I think you need to know this in the core of your soul, is that this earth is not it. This isn't all we got. There is a place that is waiting for us, that is beyond our comprehension. There is a place where people that you loved are gone, but they're more alive than ever. I saw Jackie. Jack, Jackie gave me some nice cherry jam. jam. Thank you. But her husband, Eugene, where is he? He usually is sitting right there smiling. He's not there. He's probably smiling bigger than he ever has before. You know? Like, and I think, we, I think what has happened, so I lost my dad 15 years ago. And uh, I cannot believe that he's just in dirt. We have a real place that we're really heading towards. 
And today we're going to talk about it. And if you can open up the, your Bibles, Matthew chapter uh, 17, the title of this is Heaven Came Down. We're going to get a glimpse of what is waiting for us. Just a glimpse. Maybe 10, 15 minutes of it is what really happened. But it's given to us for a purpose. And I want us to find out why did this happen. What is going on? In fact, we live in a day and age when you talk about heaven more and more, especially at what I would say socially aware churches, heaven has become more of a myth than a reality. And people say, will you quit speculating on the afterlife? You know what heaven really is? Is to make the quality of life down here better. That's what we're here for, to make this world better. Uh, we are here to care for people and show the love of Christ. But I'm telling you, this world does not compare to what we are going to see with our eyes. So we're going to read verses 1 through 9. I was going to go all the way through 24, but that's just too... I want to do this passage justice. So I'm scrapping 10 through 24. <laughs> I'm, I shouldn't say scrapping because I don't want to treat the Word of God bad. I'm setting it aside for now. Okay. Better? That's better. All right, here we go. Verse 1. Verse, uh, verse 1, chapter 17. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John. Those are the, they call them the, the three core inside group of disciples. Peter, James, and John. So Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother. Led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Luke's account says his clothes were as bright as lightning. Think about that. Okay, verse 3. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. So that's where we're going to end. question is, what's going on? Just to give you a brief overview, it's really coming off the heels of chapter 16, verse 28. Look at 16, verse 28. The disciples were having a conversation with Jesus about who is he. Peter said, you're the son, son of you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And then in verse 28, Jesus says, truly, I say to you, there are some standing here, and he's talking to his disciples. He's saying, some of you who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And then you go right to verse 1 of chapter 17. And after six days... Jesus took them with him, Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up the high mountain by themselves. So the implication, Jesus says, some of you are going to see the kingdom of heaven with your own eyes, and six days later, they got to see the kingdom of heaven 
with their own eyes. And what they saw, how do we describe it? It says Jesus was, first of all, transfigured. They went to a high mountain and he was transfigured. The word means metamorphosis. It means that he was changed in substance. We like to say when Jesus came by the incarnation, God, Jesus God, put on flesh, or he veiled himself in clay. One person gave the analogy, the way you can talk about the incarnation, God putting on flesh, is you take a light bulb and then you put a paper bag over top of it. That's sort of what happened when Jesus was born of a baby. But here, it's sort of like he took the paper bag off for a little bit. And you get to see him, what he looks like in his glory. And if I was to rip open the heavens, sitting at the right hand of God is the one whose face is as bright as the sun. And clothes like lightning. I don't know what that means. But I like to say, um, this is a great apologetic How's your God compared to my God? My God's face shines like the sun. How about your God? Well, I follow Muhammad. You know Muhammad's face is still clay. I know it's a bad argument, but it should work. <laughs> so then, so then they see him, and then all of a sudden, Moses and Elijah show up. How in the world did they know it was Moses and Elijah? They have pictures from the Old Testament, you know, like the kids' version. Oh, it looks just like. The felt board Moses. It's got to be Moses. How did they know? We'll talk about that in a little bit. And then while Moses and Elijah were there, they're talking a little bit, and then a gigantic cloud that's nothing but light comes over them and envelops them. And it gives remembrance back to the Old Testament when the God Shekinah glory, his glory in a cloud would come down over the temple. And sometimes it would lead them through the wilderness. So here they are, Moses, Elijah, Jesus shining like the sun, the inner three, and then all of a sudden they hear a voice. Wonder what his voice sounded like. I, why do we always go to the English? This is my beloved son. You know. <laughs> but what would God's voice sound like? Oh, like, oh man. And he says, with him I'm well pleased. And you know what? Listen to him. Listen to him. And then all of a sudden, these guys started trembling because they were in fear. They get on their knees and they fall and trembling. And Jesus puts a hand on their shoulder. They look up and he's, everything's back to how it was. And that's the story. That's the transfiguration. So what does it mean? The first thing I'd like to offer to you is this. Is that the man from heaven revealed who he really is. Before, if you remember, we had a debate last week how Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus said, I've got to go die. And Peter said, no, Lord. And he goes, get behind me, Satan. Think what Jesus is doing here is kind of flexing his majestic muscle. Do you know who you're talking to, Peter? I'm from heaven. I want you to go to the book of John. John says it really clear. John chapter 3. So John chapter 3 is a great passage where Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and he basically, it's where you get, for God so loved the world, he gave his one and only begotten son. That's 3.16. But before you get there, you go to verse 13. Verse 13 says, no one has ascended. That means gone up. 
actually gone up and entered this realm called heaven. No one's ascended into heaven, except, there's one exception, he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So what the book of John is saying is that Jesus himself, his natural homeland is heaven. That's what verse 31 says. Verse 31 of John 3 says, he who comes from above is above all. So Jesus is from above and he's transcendent. That means he's just superior. There's no one like him. And then it says, he was of the earth, that's you and me, we belong to the earth. And we speak in earthly ways. But he who comes from heaven is above all. So what this is saying is Jesus is from an actual realm called heaven. Here's the problem. We use the word heaven, but the Bible has, describes it as three realms. There's three heavens. So I'll put it to you like this. The bottom realm is the first heaven, that which we see. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. Day after day, they pour forth speech, meaning the sun, the moon, the stars, the blue sky, the clouds that go by, the tornadoes. Everything gives glory to God in a physical sense. That's the first heaven. I believe, personally, that first heaven was a stage made for us where the play of redemption is acted upon. And so the galaxies, the faraway stars, that's still part of the first heaven. Then you have what Bible calls the third heaven. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Second Corinthians, it's after Romans and 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 12. So Paul is going to basically give his um, act, why you should listen to him. He's going to say why I'm a credible witness to God. He was uh, in the Corinthian church, because 2 Corinthians is written to the Corinthian church, and they were listening to these false apostles. And they were saying, Paul, you're not as impressive as these false apostles. He goes, okay, but did they ever do what I did for God? And one thing he did is he died and went to heaven. Scholars believe in his first missionary journey, he was stoned in the city of Lystra. When he was stoned in the city of Lystra, they had to drag him out. They believed that is the moment he died. And then eventually he came back to life. Look at what chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians says. I must go on boasting. So Paul's saying, all right, I'm going to give you my credentials. Though there's really nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. So he's going to say, look what, this is what I got to see. Verse 2, I know a man, he's talking about himself, in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. So the idea is caught up means he was brought up into the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. So paradise, the place where everything is pleasure, everything is perfect, and it's full of joy is equated to the third heaven. So he's saying third heaven equals paradise. Where the thief on the cross died, and Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. The third heaven is paradise. Verse 4, and heard things that cannot be told which man may not utter. So he's saying, in paradise I heard things, and I'm not allowed to talk about them. And the Greek has the idea is because they, it's, it's almost unlawful to talk about using a clay tongue to talk about earthly things. 
This is part of the reason why you get those books about people who go to heaven and come back and talk about it. Uh, Paul got to go to heaven, and because he saw it, look what happened in verse 7. So to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations of the things I saw, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. So he's saying, God, God does not want me to get puffed up about what I saw. And not only that, I really can't talk about it. It's just, I, I just don't know how to, and I shouldn't. Because what happens in the third heaven is nothing like earth. God's eyes are too pure to look upon iniquity. In fact, when Satan was up there, he was called the guardian cherub. I don't know what his job was to guard something, but I, some people think he was the musician of heaven. It said on the day he, he got, he, they found pride in him, he was tossed out of the third heaven, and he's no longer allowed up there because nothing with iniquity is allowed to be up in the third heaven. So where was he tossed to? This is where the whole concept of the heavenly warfare realm, I'd call it the second heaven. The second heaven is the invisible realm where demons and angels have war. Angels actually are sent from the third heaven down to the first heaven, and sometimes it takes them a long time to get to the first heaven because they've got to fight enemies in the second heaven. Go to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 6. Verse 11 and 12. And this talks about put on the armor of God as if we are in a battle. And verse 11 says, Ephesians 6, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So the devil's scheming, the devil's plotting, the devil's preparing against those who live in the first heaven. That's where verse 12 comes in. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So the second heaven is basically the kingdom of darkness. The kingdom of darkness is full of devils and demons who are trying to influence people in the first heaven to bid, do their bidding. In fact, according to Ephesians chapter 2, 1 and 2, if you are not a slave to Christ, you are being deceived by the prince of the power of the air every day to disobey the one who reigns in the third heaven. So I just want to kind of give you a framework of when we talk about heaven and when Jesus comes out, out from heaven, where is he coming from? Well, his natural habitat, the third heaven. And what we're going to see in the transfiguration is what it's like. Just a glimpse, just a little tear of glory. So what, is, what, do we, what do we need to learn from the transfiguration? The first thing I want to say is that Jesus is superior. There's utterly nobody like him. I mean, really, have you ever seen anybody whose face was as bright as the sun? And this is not reflected radiance. It's emanated radiance from the inside of his essence. In fact, it says when we finally go to heaven, 
Heaven's going to be lit up by the Father and the Son. His clothes, according to Luke, are, it's almost like they're channels of his radiance. They actually probably magnify the beauty that's coming from the outside. Jesus, in his nature, is glory. And there's nobody like him. Nobody. And to describe him, I don't have any idea what I'm talking about. Truthfully. That's why in 1 John, John says, I saw with my own eyes, I heard with my own ears. Him. I want you to go to the book of Hebrews. I would also say, I would also say what's happening in Matthew 17 is Hebrews illustrated. It's a condensed version of what the whole book of Hebrews is about, how Jesus is supreme. He's greater than everybody. Begins in verse 1 of Hebrews. Sorry, I'm making you turn a lot in the Bible. Shouldn't do that at church, but we're doing it. <laughs> Hebrews 1. I want you to look real close because it's really cool. It's exactly what happened at the transfiguration. Hebrews 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Who came to visit Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration? Elijah. Elijah represents the prophets. What did God say to John, James, Peter, and John? Here's, here's Elijah, but here's Jesus. And then he turned to Jesus and said, listen to him. Look what it says in Hebrews 2. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. We have the prophets. We have their word. But in these days, he has spoken to us by his son. Listen to him. Do you know, um, it's, really, it's really funny when people say, don't judge me. I've always wanted to have a, what's a good comeback when people say, don't judge me, you have no right to judge me. But the truth of the matter is, we don't judge you by our opinions. Judgment comes by what Jesus said. In the book of John, chapter 12, at the very end, he said, every person, when they die, they are going to have to give an account for every word that Jesus spoke. That's what they're going to be judged by. So it's not us judging. It's him who judges. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. This is really interesting. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him, who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. In verse 3. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. So he's saying, not only is Jesus' word to be believed more than Elijah, but Jesus' position as priest is greater than Moses. Listen to him. Listen to his answer for our sin. His sacrifice is greater than the ones Moses offered. So you have Moses and Elijah, and Hebrews is saying Jesus is better than both of them. Go back to Hebrews 1 again. This is where it really gets interesting. Verse 3. So it says in Hebrews 1, you know, he created all the world. Then verse 3. He, meaning Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is the radiance of God's glory. What does this mean? I read one book that basically says, if you look at the sun in the sky, you're really not seeing the sun, 
you're seeing the rays of life that are be, the rays of light that are being emanated by the sun. So what you're visually seeing isn't the substance of the sun. You're seeing the light that's being projected from the sun. In the same way, Jesus is the rays from the Father. He's the visible manifestation of the essence of the living God. So to see God, you look directly at Jesus. He is the radiance of God's glory. And on the transfiguration, they saw him in all of his majesty. They saw him what he's going to look like forever. And he's awesome. He's really awesome. And then what's interesting is that Shekinah glory came over him, and it's just, he is God. He's God. So what does the transfigure also teach us? That heaven, heaven's a holy place. Heaven is holy. And by holy, there's two ways it's being described in Matthew 17. It's a place that is full of light. Light as a metaphor, you can read this in 1 John. Light represents the absence of evil, the absence of iniquity, purity. As Habakkuk 1.13 says, God's eyes are too pure to look upon evil. So heaven is a place of purity. It's so pure that us in our, in our position, we can't get there. One person, I remember this discussion about you know, is Gandhi going to go to heaven? And one Christian said, well, no, Gandhi's not going to go to heaven. Somebody said, how dare you? He was a great man. And the guy said, because you're, you're making an assumption. And here's the assumption. You are assuming somebody can stand in the presence of God in their human form. It's not possible. It's not possible. He's perfectly holy. In fact, verse 7 or verse 6 says when the disciples heard this, they saw the kind of glory, they saw Jesus they, they fell on their faces. They were terrified. He is so holy, I can't enter his presence in this current state. That's why I need somebody to die for me. And the second thing I'd say about holiness is it's a, holiness is a place of love. Look at the end of verse 5. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. How does God describe his son? He describes his son with the term of endearment. I love him. I love him. And in a sense, love is not just affection, but love is knowing a person as they really, truly are. It's funny. You could say it like this. So the Old Testament uses this word called countenance. Countenance has that idea. I can know somebody by their countenance. Their inside is coming outside, and I can see who they are by what's coming on their face. I think in heaven we are going to know people more about who they are on the inside than they are on the outside. In fact, I think that's how they knew it was Moses and Elijah. How did Peter know it was Moses and Elijah? Because you just are going to be known. People are going to know you. It's going to come out from you. The problem with being earthly people, we want to be known by what we plaster on our face or what clothes we wear. When I was in high school, there were a couple groups of people. We had the jocks, we had the goth. Do you remember the goth? TJ, remember goth days with the black lipstick? You were goth, weren't you, TJ? No, you're never goth. <laughs> we had bandos. That's what we called them. Do you know what bandos are? I know. So you know exactly what I'm talking about, but you're not allowed to say you know what that is. 
And then we had the geeks. So we had these groups of people. And each group felt they were so unique. But how come they always dressed the same? And they always listen to the same. You, you could tell who somebody was because we think our identity is what everybody else is. In fact, Comic-Con, we think we're so unique. How come you're always wearing the outfit? How come there's seven, 70 Batmen here? You know, everybody thinks they're so unique. Or, you know, you know even, this, even this, and I know people get mad at me about this, but it kind of drives me crazy, this gender movement where everybody wants to express who they really are. How come they express themselves always the same exact way? Always. Why, when a man wants to be a woman, does he think a woman's a lady who has long hair and paints her nails and puts on lipstick? We think it's all outward. Do you really know a real woman? I know all four of my sisters, and each one of my sisters are completely and utterly unique in themselves. I think that's what heaven's going to be. We're finally going to be who we are. And we're going to be seen as we are. But that's just my conjecture, so I better get off of that. All right. Third thing about the transfiguration that it's trying to teach us, it's simply, simply a foretaste. It's a little nibble of the meal that's waiting for us. It's not meant to satisfy us. It's meant to arouse our curiosity. Because if it was meant to satisfy us, we would want to have nothing to do with this earth. And we would not want to do what God has sent us here to do. My wife and I, when we went to Russia, we had this interpreter called Helen. And Helen was able to come to the United States for two to three weeks to study the English language. She left Russia, and at the time, this is back in the late 1980s, 1989, when she left. And it was still really repressive. She left, came to America, and she couldn't believe all of the stuff you could get in the United States. She even said they have, like, you go to a supermarket, there's like 20 different kind of apples. She's amazed. But when you go back to Russia, they only have one kind of apple. And she said, I wish I never went to America because I got to see what really we could be, but I went back to Russia and I knew I could never have it. And I hit a big depression in my life. It's kind of like you get out of the cesspool for a little while, look around, and you go back down in knowing you can never have that. I think sometimes we want heaven and we want to dwell in the heaven, but we're not meant for heaven yet. There's a lot of business to be done down here. So we get glimpses of it every once in a while, little bits of it, to get us excited about it, but not enough to be satisfied. In fact, we'll never be satisfied. So then the question, what is it that we need to focus on? Very interesting. Go to the book of Luke, the same Luke chapter 9 has the same story of the transfiguration, but gives a little more details. So Luke 9, in verse 30 and 31. So you'll see in verse 30 what we already read in Matthew 17. But 31 gives us a little bit more insight on what's going on. Verse 30 says, And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. We talked about that. But look at verse 31. So Moses and Elijah and Jesus are talking. It'd be fun to hear those guys talk, so they're talking. In verse 31, what are they talking about? Who appeared in glory, and they spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. 
They were focused on his departure, meaning the way he's going to leave this earth, his death. If you go back to Matthew 17, they get to see the transfiguration. They fall on their face. Jesus comforts them in verse 9 and says, Rise and have no fear. When they lifted their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. The, the vision's gone. And then verse 9, And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. In fact, in chapter uh, 17, verse 9, 19, no, 17, verse 11, um, uh, that's not what I want, 17, 22, kind of talks about the same thing. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and it will be raised on the third day. What is the focus that we should primarily focus on on earth? Paul says it like this. I preach nothing but Christ in him crucified. Paul doesn't come in to just talk about glory. Paul comes to talk about the cross and Christ crucified. Why? Why should that be our focus? Why don't we get to just focus on heaven every day? Because the cross is meant to teach us two things that we have to linger on. We have to linger on it, and we're so quick to leave it. And here's the two things. The first thing the cross teaches us is the true nature of God combined with the true nature of man. On the cross was the Son of God. That shows me how much God loves me. Do, how do I know God loves me? Look at the cross. The cross shows me how holy God is, that the Son had to take his full wrath for my sin. How do I know God's holy? Because he had to kill his son with his wrath. The cross shows me how God has expectations. He's perfect. Judgment had to occur. God did, didn't let it go by. Judgment's part of his nature. The cross shows me who God is. The cross shows me he loves me. The cross shows me that he's holy. The cross also shows me me. That I'm sinful. And I need a substitute to get any favor with God. The cross shows me I'm a trespasser. This cross shows me I'm unable. I'm unable to save myself. I can't go on the cross. So the cross is meant at a daily level to conform me into the image of Christ. I'm supposed to linger there. And it is there in my earthly body that I will understand everything about God. Focusing on glory, however, does something completely different in these earthly bodies. And I'd say this. The focusing on glory often makes us very proud of what we saw. We're easily puffed up. We're easy to be really impressed that God gave us this vision. Sometimes God will give you glory because he knows you need it. You'll get this feeling that's overwhelming. You'll see a miracle that happens. But don't linger there. Sometimes people linger there, and the longer they linger, the more special they think they are. I know people that will come up to me and say, you really need to come to my prayer group, because when we pray, we really meet with God. What does that mean? So when I meet, when I pray, I don't? Well, you don't know. I, I really meet with God. That's a little haughty, isn't it? To think that your vision makes you a little bit better than everybody else's? 
relationship with God. We are all on equal, equal level with God. There is no... I would say God, God wants us all with the same promises to come into his presence. We have to be very careful that we're not puffed up. Look at Colossians. Colossians chapter 2. Colossians 2, 18 and 19. It says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism. That means people who think a spiritual person is a person who denies all pleasure. That's, that's, that's pride. And don't let them disqualify you of those who are Insist on the worship of angels, going in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. The idea that I saw some great vision. Reason why this is a big one for me, I grew up in a I grew up in a denomination for 23 years where, where my grandmothers would claim that they saw these amazing visions in the sky where the sun would shake, so they'd go to this place called Magadori pay a lot of money to get holy water because that's where this incredible vision happened. And they'd take this holy water and sprinkle it on somebody who was sick, thinking it healed them, and it never healed them. And they thought it was this vision God gave them, and they were deluded by the vision, thinking that they were given special insight. We have to be very careful with the special insight. I want to read to you from 1 Corinthians 8, 1 to 3, and listen close to what it says. Kind of a warning to us. Paul writes, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up. The idea that I'm doing spiritual things, it puffs up. But love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, has special insight, knows a little bit more, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is loved by God. The key is how you love each other. Not what you saw, not what you experienced, or not what you, you believe was given just to you. How do you know you love God? Because you love those people around you. The cross is meant to give us surgery, to conform us in the image of Christ, to take out sin, and to kill our pride. And the less pride there is, the more heaven will come into our life. That's just the truth. So the final thought on heaven, should we not think about it? Should we not talk about it? Should we not hope for it? No, it's still just the opposite. It is the goal for every adventure in Christ. It's our dream come true. C.S. Lewis put it like this. We are very shy nowadays of even mentioning heaven. We are afraid of the jeer about pie in the sky and of being told that we are trying to escape from the duty of making a happy world here and now into dreams of a happy world elsewhere. But either there is pie in the sky or there is not. If there is not, then Christianity is false, for this doctrine is woven into its whole fabric. In other words, Jesus is waiting for us. My dad's waiting for me. Dave and Kathy Harrison, they're having a blast. Eugene is just fine. Charlene Winnell is doing wonderful. Larry Skydema is more alive than he's ever been before. We've been promised it. 
We are not given a destiny of dirt six feet in the ground and that's it with maggots and worms eating us. We are destined for a brand new body that is going to be conformed into the image of Christ for all eternity. What does that mean? I have no idea. But it says it will be immortal. I love how Charles Spurgeon said it. These bodies are going to be so immortal we'll probably be able to take trees and the earth and rip them out by their roots and just toss them like a twig. Heaven's going to be incredible. And Jesus is worth worship.